Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the transfer window. It's the podcast that not only takes you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football, but brings you insight and analysis of the issues that matter every Monday, Wednesday and Friday. I'm Johnny McFarlane and joining me today are our pundits extraordinaire Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. On today's transfer podcast, we bring you news that Real Madrid have stepped up their summer pursuit of Samba superstar Neymar. We ask if Florentino Perez can prize the Brazilian away from PSG and what it means for Eden Hazard who has his heart set on a transfer to the Bernabeu. We take an in-depth look at Benfica kid Joe Felix and ask, is he the next superstar of world football? And Liverpool v Bayern analysed. An excellent summer window has seen Liverpool on the road to Premier League glory, but has a change in style diminished their Champions League prospects? Okay, guys, well, we start with some absolutely huge news from Duncan. We've been telling you about Neymar and his mild discomfort in Paris almost since he arrived there. And it looks like he could be finally on his way to a big club in the summer. Duncan, tell us more. Real Madrid, as you know, have been pursuing Neymar since his time in Brazil. Um, you know, they had a huge fight with Barcelona to try and get him from Santos. Failed in that. Had a, had a go at, at trying to get him out of Barcelona direct to Real Madrid. Um, then some go to Paris Saint-Germain and have, since that point, um, Florentino Perez has seen that as the opportunity to get him back to Spain, back in the Madrid, um, into Madrid and make him the centre point of a new team, uh, minus Cristiano Ronaldo. Cristiano Ronaldo was gone uh, last summer. Um, Madrid, I'm told, are extremely serious about making this happen um, at the end of this season. Um, they're prepared to put down the money required in terms of a transfer fee, which would obviously be substantial for a player who costs $222 million just to uh, activate the release clause from Barcelona less than two years ago. And wages, he's on um, $30 million net basic at Paris and would expect a, an increase on that. I'm also told he's been Madrid have been encouraged by Neymar and by his father in that pursuit, um, not just in the sort of public pronouncements that Neymar kind of slips in from time to time about wanting to play elsewhere in his career and being interested in going back to La Liga, but also um, in private discussions. So this, I think, is now extremely serious um, and the decision really will come down um, to Paris Saint-Germain. Um, and I think there, there is scope um, for Paris to accept that the time that they've had their time with Neymar and that that time hasn't been as successful as um, as they'd hoped to be when they signed the player. Um, I was looking at statistics on 
on his appearance record for Paris Saint-Germain in the less than two years he's been there um, this weekend. And incredibly, he's missed 47 matches, either through injury or um, rest. Um, and we know that Neymar has a propensity to, to decide that he wants to take a holiday um, at certain times of the season, usually to coincide with his, um, with his sister's birthday, but often when he just can't be bothered playing in, in a particular match in France. Um, and he's also, I think, um, if not quite been surpassed by Kylian Mbappe as the, as the centre point of that team, he's on his way to being surpassed by Kylian Mbappe. I think if, if you were to, to take a, a bet on who was going to end up between the pair of them winning um, more Ballon d'Or in their career, um, once Messi and, and Ronaldo have been moved aside in that sort of eternal battle of the of the best player in the world, if you, if you take a bet between Neymar and Mbappe, I think the the, the sound money is going to be on, on Mbappe at this stage. Mbappe hasn't been problematic for for PSG; quite the opposite. Um, not not a not a player full of tantrums. Um, he's younger than Neymar, significantly younger. I think more versatile in the way he can play. He's French, he's from Paris. Um, but from a playing perspective, it takes a lot of boxes. And I think there's also a financial perspective in the sense that Paris Saint-Germain have got to be concerned with UEFA financial fair play. They're under sort of constant supervision by the other major clubs um, to try and rein in the spending that they've engaged in in past seasons. And to allow Neymar to go would at once raise, obviously, a substantial transfer fee and simultaneously uh, create a, a large amount of space in their wage bill to kind of rebalance their squad away from what's been a very attack-oriented um, uh, roster that they have to something which would where they could improve at goalkeeper, um, improve in central midfield, which has been a big issue for them just round out the squad in a way that they, you would think they would have a better chance of achieving Qatar's central aim, which is of winning the Champions League. I think as well, um, <clears throat> money aside, Duncan, uh, one of the problems that one of the motivators for um, Neymar leaving Barcelona was the eternal struggle with Messi to be the star player, the centre of attention, the man who the team built around, etc., and Paris sold that to him very well um, two seasons ago when he joined. <clears throat> sold him the project well. I still think the financial aspect of the deal was the one that swung it. But if we're looking at what the future holds for Neymar, um, Barcelona have made it fairly uh, clear that they are not um, anticipating a return to camp now for Neymar. And, of course, he would encounter the same problem again, i.e. Messi as the um, star attraction. Now that Cristiano Ronaldo's left Real Madrid, there is a hole in that club waiting to be filled <clears throat> for the Uber Galactico, and Neymar certainly fits that bill. The team would be built around him. He would be given uh, free reign. They would defer possession to him uh, whenever they could. And, of course, what we know about um, the Madrid fans is they, they, love, they love that kind of player. And therefore, he wouldn't get, he wouldn't be subjected, without good reason, um, to the same kind of criticism that Gareth Bale has been, uh, especially over the last six months. Um, uh, other players, I guess, the problem for Madrid is that is they do have an 
maybe half of their squad is aging um, and needs to be um, upgraded. <clears throat> so spending so much money on one player uh, would be a, a little bit of a gamble. But at the same time, they've got some very good young players coming through. So bringing Neymar in, <clears throat> I suppose could, you could look at the positive side of the encouragement factor. Um, possibly what we also should look to is this is very bad news for Aiden Hazard because I don't see um, and Hazard and Neymar going to uh, the Bernabeu given the similarities between the, the two players. Um, so that would be an interesting kind of uh, in the mix with PSG look to replace uh, Neymar with, with Eden Hazard who of course began his career in France. So <clears throat> the fact that um, that Madrid are very serious about it doesn't surprise me. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, I did write in the uh, Daily Record transfer on the column two Saturdays ago that um, the Qatari owners are uh, discontented with his attitude and his lack of appearances and Duncan's pointed out the stats on that and that Neymar himself was growing increasingly frustrated with uh, the lack of competition, the general lack of competition in French football um, and also I think the fact that Mbappe is overshadowing him in terms of play as well so I think the, the, the stars are aligning for a Neymar move to Madrid. Just a, just a couple of additional things there. Um, Neymar's father, or Nepai as he's known, <laughs> um, uh, was uh, on French TV at the weekend and was asked about um, his future, as he, you know, I think he always is when he's interviewed, and his reply was, his future is Paris, his present is Paris. Um, it's hard to talk about the future because in football it can change at any time. So... Um, no real uh, conviction to saying that there's uh, that there's uh, that Neymar will definitely be at the club next season. Uh, the, the words that can change at any time, I think, are the key ones there. On Hazard, um, I think, yeah, Ian, you're absolutely right. It does put big question marks over um, the idea that that Eden uh, Hazard will get the move he's been angling for to Madrid um, this summer. Um, it. I checked with um, someone close to Hazard um, this morning and I was told that as far as he's concerned, he, thought, he thinks he's going there. Um, he's confident that he'll be going there. So um, it'd be intriguing if uh, Madrid are really capable of doing both of those deals simultaneously. I, I guess, Duncan, if, if they could drop Bale out of that team and, and into a transfer somewhere, then you would have to say that that, that would be workable both financially and in terms of playing staff, because Neymar and Hazard can interchange on either side, or indeed Hazard or Neymar can play through the middle as well as false nines. So that would be a, an incredible statement from Real Madrid. But let's face it, it's one what we've been waiting for for a long time. Madrid mm. have you know, barely invested in the transfer market by their standards in the last three years. So doing something so dramatic... You know, you know, so almost shocking as to buy two of the best players in the world uh, in the one summer. That's kind of vintage Florentino. You know, that's him going back to let's buy Figo, let's buy Beckham, let's buy Zidane. You know, this is this is what he does. So, yeah, we can't we can't rule it out. But I do think Bale would have to drop from from um, and would have to go to another club as well. And I've long said this. Um, I think the 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 best, and I think perhaps even Bale thinks it's the best move for him is to go to Bayern Munich, where both Arjen Robben and <clears throat> um, Frank Ribery are out of contract this summer and will not be renewed. So <clears throat> a Bale move to Bayern Munich would be an obvious one for me and, and therefore allow Hazard to join Real Madrid as well. 
Duncan, there's no sense that Neymar's antics have diminished his value. It doesn't it doesn't seem to be the case, but given he's missed so many games, as you touched upon, and that he hasn't really become the leader at PSG that many people expected, he's now 27. Does is his star burning quite so bright as it has been? Look, you can look at his scoring record. His scoring record is very good. He's, he's basically a goal a game for for PSG. Um, he has an appeal um, amongst young supporters, which is beyond almost every other player. So, so from that kind of commercial perspective, which obviously is very important to Florentino Perez, I don't think his star has diminished. Um, but I, I think the key, the key individual here is Florentino. I, I think he has been uh, deeply frustrated by his failure not to sign um, Neymar in the past, despite multiple efforts. And it, it's almost like a, a personal challenge to him and an obsession that he brings the player to the club. So um, you can do the, the kind of um, impartial analysis and say, how actually, how good is he? And how much of a risk is there involved in signing him because of the obvious um, problems he brings in terms of teammates, um, the way his father acts, the you know the breaking of promises, um, the injury issues, the the disappearing on holidays when he feels like it. You can you, know, you add all those things in, and you can say, well, really, this doesn't make um, a huge amount of sense if you've got that kind of financial ammunition to play with perhaps it would be better investing it elsewhere in the team I, I just don't think that matters here because it's Florentino Perez saying I want Neymar I see the opportunity to sign him so I'm going to go ahead and do it and I'm going to prove um, you all wrong once I get him at Real Madrid. I think my favourite bit of analysis there was that Neymar's father is called Pai which uh, means something rather different in Scotland. It's what I hear when I go to Greg's for my third pie of lunchtime. <laughs> <laughs> surely, surely his name should be Fingers and Many Pie. <laughs> <laughs> okay, moving, moving swiftly on away from my eating habits and on to Duncan's transfer window column in the Daily Record, which if you don't read it, Make sure you do, because it's full of insight. And this weekend, Duncan was looking at Joe Felix, the attacking midfield striker, winger from Benfica. Um, very versatile young man who is looking to be one of the hottest talents in Europe uh, in the coming years. Duncan, where is this boy going to end up? don't know where he's going to end up, but it's going to be at a top club. Um, you know, the, the, the column was basically um, framed around... The, the the speed at which valuations of young players accelerate these days. Um, Jean Felix was with Benfica B last season. He's just turned 19. He uh, made his debut early uh, this season, scoring debut um, for the senior Benfica team, but was basically left on the sidelines by um, the previous manager. They then promoted their coach, uh, Bruno Laghi from, uh, from Benfica B to take charge of the team. And he um, essentially restructured around Jean Felix, making him the second striker, changing to a 4 4 1 1 formation, making him the second striker, charging him with creating the goals and, and, and scoring the goals. And he's been revelatory. Um, across the season, he's in the, in the 
Portuguese league. He's got seven goals in 643 minutes. Um, interesting little statistic um, to the extent where you, you like the expected goal stuff. He's, he's, the expected goals for the shots he's taken is just 3.41 and he's scored seven. So that's showing you the, the ability to get the ball into the net from um, you know, pretty ridiculous positions. He's got all the elements of pace and skill you look for in a modern striker. And the uh, Benfica, Benfica put him on a new contract um, at the end of November. Uh, they increased his wages to a million euros gross, which is a huge wage in Portuguese league terms for, for a teenager, and increased the buyout on his contract to 120 million euros. And essentially everyone is looking at him. All the big clubs are scouting him seriously. The full expectation of the people around him is that he will he will move um, in the summer for that price. Uh, they compare they compare the situation around him to that around Mbappe during his first full season at Monaco, and you look what happened with Mbappe. Basically, the bidding started at 60 million euros, and by the time by the, the summer it got to 180 million euros with Real Madrid agreeing uh, terms with him in Paris Saint Germain. Um, eventually convincing him to come there and Pep Guardiola trying to get him to go to Manchester City. So it's that kind of circumstance where um, the big clubs have seen a, a major talent uh, doing it on the club stage. They know he's available now. Um, they know Benfica will sell. Um, Benfica's official position is that they don't want to sell him this summer. Uh, and they'd like to get another season out of him, but they, they do expect him to be the biggest uh, ever sale from the Portuguese league. That's their plan for him, and they've, they've charged people with it, achieving that. And I, I think it's now just a process of which club um, or clubs decide to bite the bullet, and, and then who can convince Jean-Felix that that's the best place for him to go. I know the situation, uh, <clears throat> so I should say the player's position is not the same, Duncan, but... Um... There was a situation. There was a similar scenario, wasn't there, with Renato Sanchez um, after the European Championship win? He was the same age; he'd be nineteen at the time. <clears throat> Moved to Bayern Munich for an initial thirty-five million euros. Didn't really succeed there. Ended up being on loan to Swansea, where he made just twelve appearances. But he was like the he at the time was the highest ever transfer fee out of the Portuguese national league, and he seems to just have you know, almost disappeared without trace. I guess the question that every club asks themselves when investing in a 19-year-old, where you're investing not in proven talent, but effectively in potential is, is he going to progress the same way that he has up until now so that he becomes that elite player? And secondly, um, is the money that we are gambling on the fee going to be worth it? I, I, I just, you know, I, I think this question is going to be asked lots of times because you've got the current situation with at Chelsea with Cameron Hudson-Odoi, um, who Chelsea are expecting another bit of between 40 and 45 million pounds in the summer for him. And, um, you know, by Borussia Dortmund quoting 70 million for Jadon Sancho to even begin negotiations. And this incredible inflation in prices for teenage players, as you talked about in your column on the weekend in the record, it just seems to be getting a little bit out of control because... If you ask any academy director or academy coach in the Premier League um, about their, their current crop of players, one thing always comes up, 
one sentence is always repeated and it's kind of the way that they operate and that is everyone thinks and by that I mean everyone in the club thinks there's one £10 million player in their academy. Now, obviously, that could go up to there's one £35 million player in our academy or one £40 million player in our academy but it doesn't always work out that way and so I think there is uh, you know, a real sense of risk involved um, when you pay that amount of money for a player who is effectively still developing both physically and in terms of his talent as well. Uh, but in saying that, the clubs that you've been talking about with regards who have interest in Charles Felix, they can afford to write that off if they need to. And of course, if it turns out to be a good buy, then you've got someone who's worth £200 million in four years' time. But said, there, there's two sides to this coin. There's the, the, the one that the clubs would like to think is going to be the future, and the one, very, one which more often then that scenario is the reality. I think, yeah, there's definitely a risk. I think there's a risk in any transfer, but I think there is a risk in these young players. But I also think um, Kylian Mbappé has, has been important here in the, the sense that people uh, thought, what are these clubs doing offering €180 million, Euros, which was, you know, miles. If, if we take Neymar out of the equa- equation, it was miles ahead of, of the transfer fee that would be paid for any player um, up until that summer. Um, why are they prepared to spend so much on, on a teenager who's only had one full season uh, in, in senior football? And I, I think the question's been answered with Mbappe. The, you know, they've, they've signed the future Ballon d'Or winner. Um, so then you, you, the process becomes one of assessing just how good the player is. Um, and I think with Jean-Felix, the, the word around him is, yes, supreme talent on the pitch and at, at the right end of the field. So a striker rather than you know a box-to-box midfielder, which is what Renato Sanchez was. Um, but also the attitude uh, and the personality is good and the focus is good and the people around him, his, his family, um, are good too. So it takes lots, lots of additional boxes in that sense of actually having a better chance of signing the top talent. But I think what you identify is important here. It's a market effect. Once once you've got multiple big clubs um, chasing these players and you've got an environment where essentially any player um, of you know sufficient standing that they interest the top clubs these days from Leon or from Wolves or or uh, Ajax, the, the price being quoted is 100 million euros. That's that's the kind of starting point for a if a good talent, um, but possibly not an absolute exceptional talent. So then, if that's the if that's the price for uh, Ndombele at Lyon, for example, then Jean Felix at 120 million, and it's a fixed price. Um, you won't you don't have to go beyond that. Becomes more attractive and more realistic. Okay, well, we're going to move on now to the Champions League and Liverpool playing Bayern Munich at Anfield on Tuesday night. Ian, we've already seen uh, a Bundesliga team come a cropper in England last week when uh, Tottenham beat Dortmund 3-0. Do you think it's going to be more of the same in Merseyside? When you compare the form of both teams' um, positions in the league, etc., etc., then it, it should be... Um, a victory for Liverpool. Uh, that's the case. Although 
bar and half managed to recover some points in, on, on Borussia Dortmund in the Bundesliga in the last couple of weeks. But um, we used to have this kind of joke um, in the, uh, the press pack which, who covered England in major tournaments. Um, and, you know, there were certain lines that we, we all laughed at when they came out, you know. And then someone always had to ask the question. We almost had to draw straws. So if the press conference was going wrong, um, <laughs> when we were struggling for a back page headline, it was, we had to draw straws and someone would have to say, so Sven, Fabio, uh, and now Gareth, is it time to deliver? <laughs> so the, the headline would automatically be in the back page and say, time to deliver, says Southgate. Now, the reason I say that is because it is time to deliver for Jurgen Klopp. And our good friend, Rafi Honigstein, who knows him well, said as much on our podcast two weeks ago. It's not just time to deliver on the Premier League. It's time to deliver Champions League as well, because even though they were relatively easily beaten by Real Madrid in last year's final, um, this is a, a tie which is eminently, eminently uh, winnable for, for Liverpool and one which they should not lose over two legs. Uh, and also, I think, from Liverpool's point of view, in terms of their self-confidence, given the fixture list that they have coming up, um, Manchester United obviously being a big one next weekend in terms of the league, the Premier League that is, then they need this. They've not played for something like 12 days because they've been out of the FA Cup. Uh, they've been having purely training sessions, preparing for this match. If they don't win, it will be quite embarrassing, I think. Quite, and, and frankly, I mean that. It would be quite embarrassing. You never used to say that. It'd be embarrassing if Liverpool didn't beat Bayern Munich. Well, it would be this time. Um, they've got an ageing squad, as we mentioned earlier in this um, podcast. They're not playing at their best. The manager, and Nico Kovac, is struggling to hold on to his job. There's already a lot of speculation about him leaving in the summer, etc., etc. So he's under a lot of pressure. But remember, it was Bayern who also wrecked Klopp's dream at Dortmund when they defeated um, Klopp's Borussia Dortmund at Wembley in the Champions League final. Uh, admittedly, Klopp's team at that point, I think, were running out of steam. But that, if you remember the kind of fortunate nature of Arjen Robbins winning goal where the ball kind of hit off the inside of his heel and then it you know, went past the keeper in a very slow fashion. So I think for Klopp, there's an element, a little element of, you know, not revenge, but I'd certainly say atonement to be had from this particular two-legged tie. And I'd be very surprised, very surprised indeed, um, if Liverpool didn't take a very healthy lead uh, to the Allianz Arena and into the second leg. Well, they've had nine full days, clear days to prepare for the game. Um, they've been out of the FA Cup for a long time. They've been out of the League Cup. Uh, they have had, uh, by the standards of the top teams, they've had a very calm uh, January uh, winter period. Um, so all of those things are, are to their advantage. And, and yes, you'd be, there'd be this expectation that they should beat Bayern Munich because they've done so well in the Premier League this season. But I think it's worth noting that their Champions League performances this year haven't actually been very good. Um, they lost to Red Star. They lost to Napoli. They lost to Paris Saint-Germain. Um, and they would have gone out of the Champions League um, if the last kick of the, the ball in their, their final game had gone the other way and then you know, had a spectacular stop to, to save them um, going out to Napoli. So um, for all the change in personnel and the change in system has been extremely effective 
in the Premier League for them. I, I wonder if it's actually hindered them a bit in the Champions League. Um, perhaps the way that the more aggressive um, counter-pressing and, the, and the, the greater focus they had on, on goals scoring um, last season was a better match to the Champions League than what they're doing now. Um, and you know the, the improvement in their defence doesn't have quite as much benefit to it against the top Champions League teams um, as it does uh, when they're playing in the Premier League. They're definitely not in form. Um, you know, it's actually surprising that they haven't lost um, a Premier League game in the in the last few fixtures because they've been very close to to dropping more than just two points against Leicester or, or West Ham. So I think it, it's an it's an open one for them. Um, and I don't know what uh, what Manchester City would want them to do here. I, I think uh, for Manchester City to see Liverpool knocked out of the Champions League would probably be a detriment because it's going to leave them with absolutely all of their focus on um, on winning the title and no um, physical de- midweek physical demands beyond uh, the Premier League games they have to to play. So you, you'd have to think that that would be a huge advantage to Liverpool in, in turning the the, the the points or the, the, the game ahead of, of City um, back into a lead in, in the Premier League and finishing it out to, to win the title. But I think, you know, I think all, all, all things are up for grabs with Liverpool at the moment and they, they really do need to start um, stringing not just positive results but positive performances together um, uh, for, for a period of the season if they're going to get, and I think... The, the mental side, the belief side can be overplayed in football. But I think with Liverpool and this attempt to win the Premier League title for the first time and the nervousness around the club, um, Jurgen Klopp's record of, of uh, missing out in trophies when he gets to finals, so missing out in silverware when he gets close. What Rafi Honigstein w- was saying in the podcast last week that Klopp will probably never admit it, but... Um, uh, to himself, he's probably thinking it, it could be now or never to win the title with Liverpool. I think all of these things play in the mind. So, so these games against Bayern Munich are significant, um, not just to what Liverpool do in the Champions League this season, but to what they're, they're going to do for the rest of the season in the Premier League. OK, well, we're going to move on to our uh, heroes and villains round. Duncan, we're going to ask you to give us the person or the team that you feel uh, is the most appropriate villain I think my villains of the past week would be uh, the referee um, and the VAR at the Ajax um, Real Madrid game. Um, don't, if you if you saw that match, I think uh, it was another basically for me another nail in the coffin of VAR that the first important intervention it has in Champions League football is over a hugely controversial decision. Um, to overturn a goal that would have given Ajax a, a deserved lead against the holders. Um, and somehow, um, Simon Marcinak, the Polish uh, VAR, who, funnily enough, was actually supposed to be the match referee in the first place until he was replaced by Damir Skumina from Slovenia, um, managed to find a reason for chalking the goal off. And I, and I say that very specifically, and I think this is one of the issues with VAR. It allows referees, VARs, to find a reason for, for chalking goals off. You get in football, there are lots of questionable goals. 
Um, and if you have the, the time to you know, go through each goal scoring incident, incidents with a with a fine tooth comb and look and see if there's a there's a some marginal rule that may have been uh, transgressed in in the process of scoring the goal, then you're going to you're going to find some. And I think that's what happened here. Um, Dusan Tadic was in an offside position um, when uh, Ajax's header went over his and Thibaut Courtois' head for the goal. But was he interfering with play? Um, was he blocking uh, Courtois' line of sight to the scorer? He wasn't blocking the line of sight. And I think it's very questionable whether he was interfering. interfering with it's a, it was a marginal decision. And what have we been told about VAR from the very start? It's only supposed to turn over clear and obvious errors. I, the, the amount of controversy over, over that call, um, the, the, the need to watch it multiple times to actually see if there might have been an infringement just tells you there wasn't a clear and obvious error by the referee. There wasn't a clear and obvious error by the linesman. There was a, a questionable, arguable um, uh, reinterpretation of whether a player might have been inf interfering with the goalkeeper who wouldn't have been able to get a ball anyway. But surprise, surprise, it comes out in favour of the champions and allows them to go on and, and win a difficult match. Duncan, why do they struggle with that concept, clear and obvious? It's incredibly frustrating when you're watching a game and like you say, this happens where it's six, seven, eight replays before you get to the semblance of an idea there might have been an issue. Why is this rule in particular such a struggle for VR referees? I think if you're employed as a VR referee, and I think it's interesting in this case that Marcianak was supposed to be the match referee, um, then you're... you're your instinct, your basic thing will be to try and find, to, to prove your worth, to, to try and find an error on the part of, of the referee to overrule. And remember, it's a competitive process, refereeing. These guys compete with each other to get the top assignments. And it's something I've been told uh, has become particularly evident in Italy, which is in its second season of VAR, that the referees... Um, one week they'll they'll be on the pitch, and the next week they'll be in the VAR gantry, um, and they're, they're basically judging their competitors' performances, and they, they they have the ability to intervene and say, look, my competitor who's who wants to get the top games in Italy got it wrong there, and I'm going to show you that they got it wrong, and it's become a a major issue in Italian football in that the, the referees on the pitch are now refusing to defer to the VAR because they feel like it's the rival trying to make them look bad, um, and which is yet another um, unexpected consequence of introducing this technology into the game. It, it just seems that the, the deeper it goes into football, the more problems we discover about it. And um, what, what surprises me the most is that FIFA and UEFA are sticking behind it um, and you know they, they seem desperate to try and prove that everything works well with VAR. Um, any questionable decision, there's always an argument why it was right, and and it's another success story with VAR when actually the controversy over these things tells you it's not. Just to add one thing to that as well, um, uh, originally um, when VAR was being tested, it was the on-field referee who could request a review. Since the World Cup, every goal is automatically reviewed by VAR. So then you, this is why you get the referee hearing in his ear that there was a 
review going on, even though he's not requested it. He's given the goal or he's not given... Well, in this case, the goal has been given. Um, I still would be in favour for the on-field referee, even if he's told that his, there is a clear and obvious error and told what it is, that he still reviews it himself on screen and then makes his decision based on what he saw in real time and what he saw on the review screen. But if at least one man's in charge overall, then you don't get this kind of God complex happening as Duncan's described of the guy in the truck saying, oh, sorry, mate, you know, it'd be nice to think you got it right, but actually you got it wrong. And I think that's where it's going to go wrong all the time because it is competitive and people will get a tip about themselves, as we say in Scotland, and think, I'm right because I can see it from 18 different camera angles. When in actual fact, he, that person may be wrong. To be, to be fair to UEFA and FIFA, they do... Um make it clear that the on-field referee has the final decision and he should be allowed to go to that that video, uh, the, the on-field um, video review if he wants to. They're actually encouraging um, referees to use on-field review more than they, they originally wanted to happen because they think that um, makes makes it clear that the, the, the match referee is in charge. However, even allowing the guys to watch the video, you still get this competitive element involved. And and I think you, you still have that basic issue of marginal calls. You know, it's the it's the, the, the Ajax, Ajax goal getting called off. Um, just for me, it doesn't doesn't feel uh, right in the way that football should be refereed. Because because I think, and we'll only see this down the line once VAR has been in for a while. But I think if you do statistics, what you'll end up getting is less score goals scored from open play because people will find a real, find a way to, to chop goals off like they did in that Ajax Madrid game. And you'll get more goals scored from penalties, as we saw in the World Cup, because you, people will find a way to find an incident in the box that was a penalty and award a penalty. And that's, you know, do we want to see less goals from open play and more, more penalty goals? I don't want to see that. I don't know. Maybe some people do, but that to me isn't, isn't what we should be looking for as a, in a, a system that's supposed to, by FIFA's account, get virtually everything right and remove all error from the game. OK, Ian, give us your hero. Yes, well, from sadness to joyfulness, I think, now, Johnny. Um, someone who I've known for a very long time and very pleased to see him back playing in English football. Ashley Cole, one of the best, maybe the best left-back the last 20 years. Um, always, always has been a very naturally fit guy. Um, obviously, we know that he, he went to Roma for two seasons and went to play for the Galaxy uh, and now playing for his old mate Lampard at Derby County. Fairy tale in a way for him. OK, they lost the game, but this Ashley Cole has played more FA Cup finals than any other player in history. Eight finals, seven wins. It was his 49th appearance in the competition last Saturday and he got his first goal. OK, it was a, in the end, it was a consolation. Uh, it was a bit of a gift as well, you have to say, if you look back at it in terms of Dan and the... Um, Dan Burns' header out. But um, I'm glad to see him score uh, because, as I said, he deserves um, as many um, milestones that he can still achieve in a career that he's still going strong in at 38. So, um, yeah, my hero is, is, is Ashley Cole. And by the way, much nicer guy in person than people have ever made him out to be uh, in certain stories in the media. Well, uh, let's uh, slam this transfer window shut. Fear not, though, we're going to be back on Wednesday to fulfil all your podcasting needs. To continue the debate, we are all on Twitter and even have our own Transfer Window official account, which you can find at Transfer Podcast. 
Um, that's where we'll be putting out things like if we're having any questions for our Wednesday show or any information about the pod. So if you do listen, follow us there. If you want to speak to us individually, I'm at Johnny R. McFarlane, Ian is at Garbo SJ, and Duncan is at Duncan Castles. If you like the podcast, and we know thousands of you do, we'd ask that you go on to iTunes and give us a five-star review, as this helps us reach as many listeners as possible. Until Wednesday, thanks for listening.